Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm going to be your host today. If this is your first time listening, I would love to chat with you. So send me an email at hello at capitalcitychristian.org. We're continuing our series today called Life, a Hero Story. And we split the series up into a couple different acts because we think that every hero story has echoes of our own story. The first act is about the rescue where the hero shows up to make a daring rescue. Now, most often when thinking about hero stories, we try to place ourselves in the story as the hero. But as we've discovered in these messages, we're actually the ones needing rescue. The final message in this act about the rescue features our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison, talking about the reckless, undeserved, unearned gift of grace. Let's go on and get started. Let's pray together. Father, it's only because of grace that we're here. We also recognize that we've come into your presence. And I pray that this will be an encounter that will change us. Where we need to be challenged, I pray that we will sense that challenge and respond to it. Where we need to be encouraged, we pray that we will feel that. And in all things, we pray that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Glad you guys are here. I want to remind you, there's a prayer room in the back over there on that side. It's marked prayer over the top. One of our elders is in there praying for you right now. And if at any point in the service you want to pray with somebody or need someone to pray for you, just make your way onto the back there and just open that door and head on in and let them pray with you. I also wanted to explain my shirt. I usually wear t-shirts to preach, but this was cool. Mike Triplett last week had a shirt like this on, and I thought it was so cool. Basically, what you've got is all the superheroes, Superman, Batman, and Hulk, and Captain America, and they're all sitting around Jesus. And Jesus is in the middle of the group, and they're all listening very intently, as Jesus says, and that's how I saved the world. Isn't that cool? I just fit with our series. I thought it fit really well, so I went and got it, and I think it's a style statement, too. Here we go. 400 years ago, a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, theologian, basically a really, 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 really smart guy named Blaise Pascal. Well, Pascal said, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof. We arrive at our beliefs not on the basis of proof, which explains a lot of your conversations with your kids, right? We arrive at our beliefs almost not, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what we find attractive. So if we really like an idea, we try to convince ourselves that it must be true. If I really like an idea, then I'm going to look for some reason to believe it. Now, I'm not saying that's good or right. I'm not saying that whatever we like must be true. That would be absurd. What I'm saying is that when we like an idea, we want it to be right. And we'll look for a way to convince ourselves that it is right. I think Blaise Pascal was right. Well, if that's the case, why wouldn't everybody, everybody want Christianity to be true? And I'm not talking about the version of Christianity that some of you guys grew up with. I'm not talking about a polluted, twisted, corrupted form of Christianity that so often drives people away from God. 
I'm talking about real Christianity, God's dream for you, God's dream for life with you, God's dream for his church, what he meant us to be. See, there was a time when people were desperate for Christianity to be true. It was unbelievably attractive. People who were nothing like Jesus hoped it was true. They were willing to go all in, no matter what the cost, because if it was true, it was so worth it. And I believe that if we could peel back all of the junk that we have piled on top of God's dream, I could not imagine anybody not wanting it to be true. Anybody. Now, I can understand that some of you may not want Christianity to be true. I can understand why some people hope this thing is a delusion. I mean, if I had heard what you heard about us, what we think, what we believe, what we do, if I had read the kind of things that you have read, how narrow and unsophisticated and judgmental we tend to be, if I had experienced what you had experienced at some church or at the hands of some Jesus follower, I might be looking for a reason to blow Christianity off too. But if you can see past our nonsense, if you can look at who Jesus really was, what Jesus really came to do, and what Jesus really offers, I cannot imagine that anybody, anybody wouldn't want it to be true, even if they can't quite get there yet intellectually. So, do you have any idea? Do you know what drew people to Jesus like a super magnet? I mean, people of every color, every educational level, every social strata, Drawn to Jesus like a super magnet. You know what drew them there? You can actually boil it down to one word. Grace. Grace. Who in their right mind wouldn't want his grace to be true? Something we crave when we hurt people, which we all do. Maybe you say something that you shouldn't have said or you just wish you could unsay it, but you can't. Maybe you did something, you knew what was wrong, and you, you wish people could look at you as if it had never happened, but they don't. It's what we crave whenever our guilt is exposed or when we admit our guilt. And we've all got guilt. You walk in the house, your parents are sitting there, and it's your stuff on the table, and you know you're busted. There's no one to blame. Nothing's going to work. Maybe you get home and it's your husband or your wife that's sitting up there waiting for you and you're busted. Maybe your boss calls you in and tells you to shut the door and he lays it all out there and you can run through all of your litany excuses if you want to, but you know you've got it coming. Have you ever been in a spot, ever been in a spot where you so desperately wanted something you don't deserve? Have you ever hungered for grace? Maybe it's a sin against God. I mean, you know what's right, and you don't do it, right? You know what's wrong, and you do it, and you do it, and you do it, and you keep on doing it. And there's part of you hoping that maybe there is no God, no God who will hold you accountable. And another part of you fears that maybe there just might be a God, and if there is, you're hosed, Right? And you start making your case. Well, maybe if there's a God, maybe he won't care. Or maybe if there's a God, he'll notice that I usually try to do more good than bad, right? And on the flip side, even though we hunger for grace, we want it so desperately, we give it so stingily. He hurt me. You hurt me. 
How many times do I have to forgive you when you keep on doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, right? Or maybe it's way worse than you hurting me. Maybe you hurt my wife. Maybe you hurt my kid. Maybe you hurt my grandkid. You hurt me and I'll get fired up. You hurt my family and I'm going to want to hurt you, right? The last thing I want to give you is grace. When grace is received, it's amazing. When grace is required, it's awful. It's not right. Grace is undeserved. Grace is unearned. Grace cannot be earned. Someone leans in and they should be leaning away. You can't demand grace. You can't shame someone into grace. You can't make a case for grace. You no more deserve grace than you can plan your own surprise party. Whatever you do voids it. In fact, I don't think you can even recognize grace. You can't experience grace until you are absolutely, absolutely convinced that you do not deserve it. I taught New Testament at a Bible college for years. I taught Greek for years. I could tell you all about charis, the Greek word for grace, how the dictionary would define it, how the New Testament writers would use it. I lived in God's grace for four decades before I understood it. You don't really understand grace. You don't really experience grace until you're absolutely convinced that you don't deserve it. You'll never earn it. Before that, it's just a word. One more thing, just preliminarily. Grace can only be experienced in the context of a relationship. Only in the context of a relationship. It can only be experienced in a relationship that's imbalanced. And you're on the negative side of that imbalance. You have messed up. Someone should be leaning away from you. Someone should be pushing away. They should be trying to get even. Maybe they should even be crushing you. That's what you deserve. And instead, grace. Which is why everybody, everybody should want Christianity to be true. Which is why real Christianity, unvarnished Christianity, is so incredibly attractive. It's also why, since grace can only be experienced in the context of a relationship, it's why God chose to enter our world as Jesus. We needed a hero. We needed someone who could see our sin for exactly what it is. Someone who would find intolerable what we had learned to tolerate. And someone who would do whatever was necessary to, to rescue us. That's the Jesus story. And how Jesus affected that rescue just blows our minds. We talked about that last week. Crucifixion was the single worst way we knew of to kill a man. The brutality, the torture, the pain, the shame, the humiliation of a cross. It was us humans at our worst. And if Jesus had been just a man, it would have been a horrible death, but not earth-shaking. What if Jesus was exactly who he said he was? Son of God. God on a cross. No man can kill God. No cross can hold God. No nails can hold Jesus to a cross. That was God showing us how bad, how dangerous, how debauched our sin is. It was God showing us how much he loved us anyway, and it was God showing us a way out. It was the rescue. That was grace. 
So, the Apostle John wrote, we have seen his glory. We have seen the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. On that cross, and three days later when he broke out of his tomb, we saw the glory of the one and only Son of God, full of grace and full of truth. Not some precarious balance between faith and our grace and truth. 100% grace, 100% truth. We try to look for balance, right? And sometimes we're hard on the truth and soft on grace. And sometimes we're hard on grace and we get really loose with the truth. On the cross, Jesus was 100% grace and 100% truth. He was calling sin for what it was, sin. He was calling sinners what they were, sinners. And he was offering us a mind-boggling grace. Taking our place so we could live if we accept it. Now, do you buy that stuff? Do you buy that grace is the heart of this thing? And if you do, how could anyone not want this thing to be true? But sometimes we push back and we say something like, well, things that look too good to be true probably are. Or maybe, maybe it's true for you, but it's not necessarily true for me. If you know where I've been, what I've done, how deep my sin is, you doubt it too, right? Well, my goal this morning is to try to show you who Jesus came to rescue. You find out if you're one of them, Right? Luke chapter 19. Luke was kind of an investigative reporter. He talked to all of the people that he could who had been with Jesus. And here's one of the Jesus stories that made his cut. Jesus and his guys were going to Jericho. They were passing through. Actually, they were on their way to Jerusalem where he was going to die. They're only about 15 miles away. They entered Jerusalem, passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus a chief tax collector, and wealthy. Doesn't look like they plan on staying. They're passing through. Zacchaeus is there. If you grew up in church, you probably know something about Zacchaeus, right? You know he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, right? You know that he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, Right? Now, that was mean, because some of you guys are thinking the song in your head, and it's going to stick there all day, and it's a terrible song, right? It's awful. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, not just an ordinary tax collector. He had rank, power, money. What he didn't have was morals. Back in these days, the tax collectors bought the right to collect taxes. You'd buy the job, and then you'd go out and collect as much money as you could, and you'd pocket boatloads of it. So the chief tax collectors would hire guys to get the money. Their guys would set up at the crossroads of the marketplace or by the lake or something like that. They'd take as much money as they could, and Zacchaeus would get his cut. So Zacchaeus was known, and he was hated. And apparently, he was kind of little. Wherever Jesus, you know, would draw, wherever he'd go, he'd draw a crowd, big crowd. Zacchaeus didn't do well in crowds because he's kind of little. If he couldn't get to the front of the crowd, he couldn't see. And there's going to be a crowd because Jesus is coming. And I kind of wonder whether or not people were just kind of boxing him out, right? He wanted to see Jesus. I doubt if he wanted to meet him, but he's curious. I mean, if Jesus was going to be passing through Frankfurt, you'd find any spot you could to get your eyes on him, wouldn't you? 
And so he climbs up this tree, which back then, with the kind of clothes that they wore, was probably kind of hard and probably a little undignified, but he wanted to see. And when Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus was, apparently Jesus stops. I mean, there are people everywhere, but Jesus just stops and he starts looking up at Zacchaeus. And when Jesus stops and starts looking up at Zacchaeus, my suspicion is everybody in the crowd stops and starts looking up at Zacchaeus, right? I mean, if you're watching Jesus and he starts staring at a guy, you're going to stare too, aren't you? And if you're Zacchaeus, this is going to be kind of hard, right? Everyone knows who you are. Everyone hates you. Everyone's looking at you and you're up there all undignified like. I'm going to read between the lines just a little bit. I don't think it's too speculative. I suspect maybe the crowd gets kind of quiet and maybe a little bit hopeful. This is Jesus. Jesus is a fearless holy man. And there's Zacchaeus, a notoriously unholy man. Maybe Jesus is finally going to face him down and call him out. Maybe Jesus is finally going to speak a little truth into this little twit's sins. And Jesus blows their minds. He looks straight at Zacchaeus. Now, I'll never forget an incident that took place in one of our classrooms here at Capital City years ago. I wasn't there. One of our ladies, I think it was one of the Scots, she was teaching some preschool kids the Zacchaeus story. Preschool kids, right? And she had them actually acting it out. Good teachers will do things like that, just act out the story. And so she had one kid playing Jesus, and she says to the kid, what would this kid say to Zacchaeus? What would Jesus say to Zacchaeus? The kid says, I don't know. I don't know what he said. <laughs> so she asked the kid, well, what would your mom say to you if you were up in that tree? Kids sometimes say the darndest things, don't they? <laughs> What would your mom say to you? Get the hell out of that tree. <laughs> it's amazing what comes out of the mouth of our kids. Aren't you just terrified when you drop your kids off down there? Because there? you don't know what they're going to say, right? Your parents ever wince? I'm not going to tell you whose kid it was. Nor is that what Jesus said. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, let's go to lunch at your house. Let's go, let's go to your place. And the disciples are like, come on, Jesus, really? Again? I mean, you know who this is, right? And we're just supposed to be passing through, and you're going to stop at his house for lunch, and all of the people we could have done lunch with Jesus, really? And the people in the crowd tells us, really? This holy man is going to the house of that guy? It's not the way it's supposed to work. I mean, we got here early, right? We got the curbside seats. We even made signs. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you, right? They've got their signs. And their kids have Jesus shirts on, and their kids have their face paint on with Jesus. And any one of them would have taken Jesus to lunch. Any one of them. And this guy, this lowlife, is the one Jesus chooses to eat with. Why? Why? It's wrong. It's unsettling. It's backwards. It's upside down. What had Zacchaeus done to earn this? To rate this from Jesus, from God? What's Jesus wanting us to hear? A little bit later on, he tells a story that explains what's going on. He tells us a very unsettling, mind-boggling story about grace. And if you start to get this other story, you start to get it. Matthew chapter 20. 
It is one of the weirdest stories of Jesus, one of the most unsettling, disturbing, scandalous stories of Jesus. I used to teach this in class, and it really riles students up. It's not right, it feels. Now, it's a parable. And usually when Jesus tells a parable, you're in it somewhere. You've got to figure out where you are, and God is in it somewhere. You've got to figure out where God is. And oftentimes in the parables of Jesus, he kind of unmasks us. He tells us something about us, and he tells us something mind-blowing about God. So here's the story. Jesus says the kingdom of God, God's kingdom, is kind of like a guy with a vineyard who goes out at first light. Back then, that'd be about 6 o'clock in the morning. And he's going to hire guys to work in his vineyard. They'd do this back then, right? Guys who were looking for seasonal work would go to the marketplace. They'd hoping to be hired for some job. Guys with jobs would show up, and they'd hire as many guys as they needed for the day. For the employers, it's just about getting the job done. For the guys who are getting hired, it's about a paycheck. Back then, one day's work is one denarius. One day's work equals one denarius. That's a unit of money. About three hours later, the owner of the vineyard goes back to the marketplace. He's looking for more guys to hire. And he finds guys still there, standing around doing nothing. I guess these are the second stringers, right? So he hires them, telling them he'll pay them whatever is right at the end of the day. And I suspect, and I suspect those who listened to the story suspected, that all makes sense. Instead of 12 hours work, it's going to be how long it's going to be, they'll work about nine. Instead of getting a full denarius, they'll probably get about three quarters of a denarius, right? Guy goes back to the marketplace at noon, same thing, hires the third stringers. About six hours of work left, we'll settle up at the end of the day. At three in the afternoon, more of the same, now he hires the fourth stringers. About five o'clock in the evening, just one hour of work left. He goes back to the marketplace, and their guy's still hanging there. And you've got to figure, either there really isn't much work, or these are just the kind of guys you don't want to hire, or they're really not looking for work all that hard at all. Lazy maybe, wusses maybe, dishonorable maybe, I don't know. And you know that everybody who's listening to Jesus is leaning in because Jesus is this amazing storyteller and some of his stories are wild and you're trying to figure out where you are in the story. Are you a six o'clocker, nine o'clocker, 12, three, five? Where's God in the story? Probably the employer, right, who keeps going back to the marketplace. But would God actually do what this guy's going to do? Really? Is this what God would do? Sun's going down, and the owner of the vineyard tells the foreman to give the guys their paychecks. And he tells them to start with the last first. Interesting little detail. Start with the last first. Make everybody else watch. He's setting something up. He's setting up trouble. Once you see what he's going to do, you begin to understand it's kind of like he's baiting them. We don't like this story. It's wrong. God's doing it wrong. I'm one of the good guys, right? I mean, I was there before daylight looking for work. I worked like a dog all day long. In fact, I even stayed afterwards and helped in the cleanup. I was baptized at eight. Been in church ever since. Rarely miss. Pretty straight-laced growing up. I had issues, but most people thought I was holier than most. Go figure. Bible college, seminary, grad school. I taught Bible at a college for 20 years, been preaching more often than not for 45 years. I've even done extra credit. 
right? Sunday nights for years, Wednesday nights for years, spiritual retreats. I give my first part back to God. Try to behave at least well enough that I don't bring too much shame to God or to Cap City. At least I try to keep my sins as quiet as I can. I'm a six-in-the-morning guy. The owner of the vineyard tells the foreman to start paying the five o'clock guys first. Make me watch. Then the three o'clock guys, they get their cut. Then the noon guys. And the rest of us are watching and we're processing. And what he does first makes just about everybody really happy. And then the further it goes, the more we get really annoyed. Jesus says the foreman gave all the five o'clock guys, one hour guys, a full denarius, full day's wages for one hour's work. My suspicion is that absolutely everybody is cheering, right? Everybody's cheering. One hour guys are cheering because they're getting way more than they deserve. Three hour guys are cheering because they figure, I think I'm going to probably get way more than I deserve too. Isn't that cool? Six-hour guys, nine-hour guys, maybe a little less excited. Well, at least it's going to be more generous than we expected. And the 12-hour guys, well, we're stoked because if this is proportional, I'm going to get a big paycheck, right? Three-hour guys get paid next, one denarius. Well, we'd kind of hope for more, but it's still really, really good. Six-hour guys get paid one denarius. A little disappointed, maybe. After all, I did work a lot longer and I did work a lot harder than they did. By the time we 12 o'clock guys get our check, we're not just disappointed in God, we're mad. One denarius, just like all the rest of them. They're kind of like the guys who'd gotten to the parade early when Jesus was coming through town and then Jesus goes off to lunch with this Zacchaeus. Go figure. What's with it, God? I mean, he's the owner of the vineyard, right? You're making these guys equal with us? They're not. We worked harder and we work longer. And God says, friends, friends, have I been unfair to you? Have I treated you wrong? Have I dissed you in any way? And then he says this, and this is absolutely huge. He says, take your money and go. I want it. I want it. It's not about what you want. I want it to pay these guys the same as I paid you. I know it's a gift. And I know they didn't earn it. But this thing isn't about what you earn. This whole thing is about my grace. It's not about what we want. It's about God's grace. <laughs> and then God says this. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Are you actually envious because I'm generous? Are you angry at God because he's gracious to someone that you wouldn't be gracious to? Don't you realize that you're in this thing because of grace too? How immature, how childish, how devilish it would be to begrudge God's grace towards anybody when the only reason that any one of us is in is grace. We play the comparison game. 
Anytime you play the comparison game, you just don't understand grace. And Jesus outs us, doesn't he? He just kind of outs us. Because most of us will put ourselves into the story, maybe as a 12-hour guy, maybe a 9-hour guy, at least maybe a 6. Because there are always others around us, we think, who are worse than we are, who deserve it even less than we do. And God invites us to look at our world a little differently. He invites us to look at people a little differently. And he looks, invites us to look at God way differently. He says, at the heart of our God is this weird, unsettling, staggering generosity. 100% truth and 100% grace. He sees you as you really are, not your mask. He tells it like it really is. And then he offers you this absolutely undeserved, unearned, unearnable grace. That's our God. It's an amazing story, if you know where you fit in the story. He sees what others are often blind to. He sees our sin, our sin, your sin. He knows how it's killing you. He feels what others don't feel. He, he refuses to tolerate what sometimes you have come to tolerate. You've, you've accepted it as normal. It's killing you. And he does what heroes do despite the cost. It's an amazing hero story. And we don't get it. We don't get it until we understand that it's absolutely all about grace. And Jesus looks at us and he says, can you handle that? Can you handle the fact that the only way you are in is grace? Can you handle the fact that I'm going to offer people that you wouldn't? Grace. Can you handle the fact that once you're in, I'm going to ask you to show it too? Now, maybe you're a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter, and you're thinking, yeah, I like that. This is a good system. I like grace. It's cool. Maybe you're a prodigal husband or a prodigal wife, and you're kind of thinking to yourself, I believe I could use some of that grace. In fact, I fear it's the only shot I've got with God, and it is. Maybe you're one of those who's been thinking, this grace sounds all good for them, but if you know who I am and you know where I've been and you know what I've done and how badly I've blown it, and Jesus says, I know. I know all that. I know everything. And I'm offering you grace. And to those of us who know the word, we know the word grace, but who are having a terrible time recognizing that we actually need it, God's telling us it's for you too. In fact, to be honest, it's the only shot you've got. One guy put it like this. He said, everybody's invited. People with baggage people with regret, people with the past. And here's the kicker. Along with all the arrogant people who judge people with the past, people with baggage, and people with regrets, everybody is invited. Everybody is invited. Everybody is offered grace. In the kingdom of God, everybody gets in through the same door, Jesus Jesus, who is grace and truth personified. Jesus, who's willing to call sin, sin. Who's willing to identify sinners as sinners. And then dies 
for us sinners. Everybody comes in exactly the same way through the same door by placing our personal faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, trusting, trusting that he did it on our behalf that we would be made right with God regardless of how unright we've ever been. Who wouldn't want that to be true? I said this a couple of weeks ago, faith is the courage to accept God's acceptance. Faith is the courage to accept God's acceptance. Faith is the courage to accept God's grace. You have faith? You willing to go in? We don't come to church to talk about God. We come to church to be with God. I hope we come to church with an openness that whatever we need inside that God nudges, we will be receptive. He's here. Maybe you felt his presence. Even if you didn't, he's here. When God nudges, don't push back. It's never wise. Some of you guys need to get your life with God started. He's rescued you, but you're going to have to accept it. You need to bend your knees and make Jesus Christ your Savior and your Lord. That's where life starts. Some of you guys have accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, but you're just enduring this life as a Jesus follower. You still don't get it yet. What he's offered to give you, what he's when he offers to do life with you, to, to raise the level of your life up to an entirely different thing. This is a time when we're going to pray together. We're going to thank God for his grace. We're going to accept his grace. And then we're going to move on. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we know when we're honest, when we're ruthlessly honest, that it's all about grace. We know that it's undeserved, it's unearned, and it's unearnable. And we know that you've demonstrated it through Jesus our Lord. For that grace we give you thanks. Father, there may be those in this room that haven't started that path with you. I pray that you will just grip their hearts with your grace. Help them to recognize that the only legitimate response is to throw in with Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. And we pray that you help us to try to live it out. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Our guys are gonna sing a song. When we sing this song, we're just not saying words. This is a place where we can engage our God. I'm gonna tell you a couple of the words that you're about to sing. Listen to these words. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Do you believe that? It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it, but you still give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. During this time when we're singing this thing, if you want to come talk, I'm going to be sitting right down here. There's an elder back in that prayer room. There's a decision card. If you need to talk with one of us and you don't want to do it here, put your name on that decision card, contact information, and we'll get in touch with you in the next day or two. Okay? 
Let's stand and sing this song together.